I have a new outline I want you to take with you for the next few weeks. It, it takes all of Revelation chapter 8, and we're, my goal will be to finish this before we leave on our missionary journey on September 4th. Today we're going to be at the very, very last point of the previous outline. I just have a couple of comments I think are worth making about the end of Revelation 7. I know originally I said I'm going to preach through Revelation 7 in one Sunday. This is the fifth Sunday. And so it just didn't work out that way. But I think what Dylan has had to share with us this morning is appropriate considering what we've been talking about. We've been talking about the 144,000 sealed Jewish witnesses that God is going to raise up during the tribulation period to complete the job begun by the church which is to take the Gospel into all the world. And we've talked about how unique an opportunity is in these last days as we share the Gospel with Jewish people that we may be sharing with some of these that God is not going to save right now, but He's going to seal them after the church has been taken out of the world and use them as the preachers for one last great revival. And last week we talked about that great revival. After John sees these witnesses, the next thing he sees is a great Gentile multitude. Not the church, but the tribulation saints. From every tribe, tongue, and nation that are saved as a result of this Jewish preaching. The church started at Pentecost with Jewish preaching and a Jewish church that went out and reached Gentiles. And at the end of time, before Christ sets up His kingdom, there's again going to be Jewish witnesses, Jewish preaching that go out and reach Gentiles. And thereby, the prophecy in Joel was fulfilled initially at Pentecost and ultimately in the tribulation. We talked about these, uh, this Gentile multitude last week, who they are and who they're not. We know for a fact, based on Paul's revelation given to him by God in 2 Thessalonians, that these will not be people during that time of Jacob's trouble who clearly heard the Gospel, as many in America have. Because God's going to send a spirit of delusion that these will be, believe a lie. But there are many people around the world, even some here in the States, that have never been confronted with the true biblical gospel. Especially when you consider that that biblical gospel is hardly preached anymore in this country behind the pulpits. Most of the sermons taking place right now in this country are little ditties about hoping and coping, sermonettes for Christianettes, and don't include the gospel. But there will be a Gentile multitude of those who've never heard the Gospel clearly or been confronted with it. But if you're banking on that as your backup plan, if the rapture of the church happens today, then I'm sorry. Because God says He's going to send a spirit of delusion. Just like He did through the prophets that came and prophesied lies to King Ahab in the Old Testament. But that's where we left off last week. But I hate to go on to chapter 8 without looking at the last couple of verses. This Gentile multitude is not the harvest. It's the gleanings of the harvest. Every harvest leaves behind gleanings in the field that are gathered by the poor of the land. That's what God told His people to do. Intentionally leave crops in the field so that the poor can come behind and glean. The church, the bride of Christ, is that great harvest. The rapture takes place, but then there's the gleanings. And the gleanings are the tribulation saints. Those that come to the Gospel because of the preaching of these Jewish witnesses and they pay for it with their lives. So these aren't half-hearted believers. These are people that come to Christ and pay for it with their heads during the period of tribulation. 
And at the very end of this chapter, we see that these are described and they almost take on the character of the Old Testament Levites. The New Testament church is the priesthood. You know, we are a royal priesthood according to uh, Peter. The tribulation saints are like the Levites in the Old Testament. They serve God day and night in His temple, in His tabernacle. And it says here at the end of chapter 7, and we'll just make a couple of comments and move on. Let's look at verse 14. We've got those rhetorical questions. You know, the angel asked John, who are these arrayed in white? And of course, that was a rhetorical question. And it says here in verse 14, these are they which came out of great tribulation not the church represented by the elders who are arrayed in white linen or given white robes, who are praising God for redeeming us out of every tribe, kindred, and nation in Revelation 5. But these are those which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Now look at verse 15 through 17. This is their role. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. Just like the Levites in the Old Testament, serving God with regard to the temple and the, the tabernacle. And he that sitteth on the throne shall dwell among them. The God whom these believe upon in that last great awakening will dwell among them. Just as He dwells amongst His people through the Holy Spirit even today. Just as He will dwell among the Jewish people in that millennial kingdom. Emmanuel. And then in verses 16-17 through 17, we get a glimpse... Even as the church, we get a glimpse of the nature of life during the millennial reign of Christ. And it gives us great hope, something that we can look forward to. Not just this esoteric eternity that we can't visualize in terms of heaven, but life in Christ's millennial kingdom when the curse is removed from this earth and the saints live and reign with Christ for a thousand years, after which time, Christ will lay down the crown and God will become all in all and God will create a new heavens and a new earth. In verses 16-17, through 17, we get a glimpse of that millennial life, not only for these tribulation saints, but for the church, for those that are saved. They shall hunger no more, neither shall they thirst any more. Neither shall the sun light on them, nor any heat. For the Lamb which is in the midst of the throne shall feed them, and shall lead them into living fountains of water, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. My friends, that is a glimpse of life in Christ's kingdom. That's not something that an earthly monarch, or a, an American president, or a worldly king can give to his subjects in this fallen planet. But this is what the king of the universe will give to his subjects in a period a golden age. The new age talks about the golden age, the age of Aquarius. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about a time when Jesus Christ Himself physically and literally sets foot on this planet and sets up a kingdom. Overthrows the wicked and when He rules and reigns from Jerusalem and the church rules and reigns with Him from the new Jerusalem, this is life. And this type of life sounds a lot like what type of life we once saw in the Bible way back at the beginning. It was short-lived. Sounds like life in the Garden of Eden. And that's what we can look forward to. Glimpses of millennial life. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11. This is one of my favorite passages concerning the millennial reign of Christ. One of my Christian brethren who leans toward Reformed theology 
And I think there's a lot of problems with Reformed theology because it tends toward replacement theology that says that the church is the new Israel and God's finished with Israel and all the Old Testament prophecies are spiritually applied to the church. That's dangerous theology and it's not biblical. My friend in Christ loves the Lord and is a bold preacher on the streets preaching the Gospel, but he needs to get his eschatology straight. But he, he, he said to me one time, how can you take one verse in Revelation that mentions a thousand year reign and build a whole doctrine on it, this doctrine of a millennial reign? I said, my friend, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. All Revelation chapter 20 does is give us the time frame of that millennial reign, a thousand years. But the reign itself is all throughout the Old Testament. The prophets, countless times, make reference to the reign of Messiah here on earth. In fact, the tribulation is those birth pangs of the Messiah. You know, when a woman goes to give birth, it's that travail, that trembling, that pain. And then the child comes, and all the pain is gone. The tribulation is the birth pangs of Messiah. Even the old Jewish rabbis teach that. The birth pangs before Messiah comes. But Isaiah 11 gives us a glimpse into this millennial kingdom as well. And this is just an amazing thing for me. I've always loved this passage. Let's look at verse 6. This is the quality of the kingdom of Messiah. We've already heard some, some qualities in Revelation 7. Look at Isaiah 11. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the kid or the goat. And the calf and the young lion and the fatling together. And a little child shall lead them. And the cow and the bear shall feed. Their young ones shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. And the suckling child shall play on the hole of the asp, or the venomous snake. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the cockatrice den. The cockatrice is a poisonous spider, like a, like a black widow or a, or a brown recluse. Verse 9, They shall not hurt nor destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse. Jesus Christ, a root of Jesse, the son of David, which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and His rest shall be glorious. We seek rest in this earth, friends. We can't find it. But in Messiah's kingdom, that rest will be glorious. And what we see here is that the curse of sin is removed from the planet. No longer is the lion eating meat. It's eating straw like the ox. And no longer must children be afraid of wild creatures. They're leading them. I've often looked at this and hoped that the Lord would let me have a pet leopard or a pet lion in the millennium. It's not much. Lord, can I have a pet lion? I won't have to worry about getting my head bit off. But that's the character and quality of the kingdom that we can look forward to as followers of Christ. When we see everything falling around us, this is what's coming. It's blessing, not for everybody automatically, but for those that follow Christ. And it will be Christ standing as an ensign amongst His people Israel, fulfilling all those prophecies. And then to that ensign will the Gentiles look and experience a glorious rest. So friends, these are glimpses into the millennial kingdom that we see here even in Revelation 7. And so these people that perish for their testimony in that tribulation period 
perish unto rest, not unto damnation. Those that are perishing unto damnation will seek death and won't be able to find it. There's a point later in Revelation where these followers of Christ are told, going forward, death is a huge blessing. Don't even fight against it because your rest is here. And that comes later. The last thing it says here in Revelation is that they will, God will wipe away all tears from their eyes. And we must ask, what are these tears? Well, in this context, they're the tears of tribulation. Those that suffer. They will not receive the mark of the beast. They will not capitulate to Antichrist's demands and that of Big Brother the government. And so their life is nothing but tribulation. How many people today that claim the name of Christ would have come to them in this place called America if they knew it would bring nothing but trial and tribulation? Probably very few that are sitting in church today. There are places around the world where to come to Christ is to invite these type of things. We see that right now with Christians in northern Iraq. What ISIS is doing to these Christian peoples. And they're surrounded. And why did it take so long for our government to decide to drop some bombs and bring in some supplies to these quarantined Christians? We do it for everybody else around the world. Amazing. When it's a Christian involved, we've got to think about it for days and days and days. But when it's radical Muslims in Gaza that want to destroy innocent Israelis, well, we've got to jump right in there and try to, try to fix it. I'm so sick and tired of the hypocrisy of this nation, and I am looking forward to the day that God throws this nation down to the ground, just like He said He would do to those nations lifted up with pride who turn their back on Israel. If you want to know what God does to nations in a place of pride that look down their noses at the Jew, read the prophet Obadiah in the Old Testament. Read it. Thou that settest in the cleft of the rock, written to Edom of old, who hated its brother, from thence, God says, I will bring thee down. And that's a sobering thought. You know, my allegiance is to Christ. You know, I'm done with this idea that God guns patriotism and, and the gospel. It's all the American. No way. There is no hope in politics. There is no hope in this country apart from Jesus Christ. And if this country is going to turn its back on Jesus Christ then I'm not going to seek my peace in what this country or an election or, or an empty robe on a, on a judge's bench can offer us. We occupy until Christ comes. We be a light in this world. We stand for righteousness. But whatever transpires, our hope is not in the immediate. It's in the real kingdom of righteousness. And that is that millennial kingdom. Alright, let's go to chapter 8 for just a few minutes. I want to introduce it to you. Chapter 8, chapter 7 was a parenthetical reference to something going on behind the scenes during this tribulation. I believe God seals these witnesses at the beginning when the seals are first opened. And while these judgments are falling out, this ministry is taking place in the backdrop. We've got several parenthetical or parentheses throughout the book. Now we resume the chronology from the end of chapter 6. Okay, at the end of chapter 6, we've had the sixth sealed judgment opened. What I call nuclear holocaust. And it's at that point, according to Isaiah, that God arises to shake terribly the earth. Now going forward, the seventh seal starts a string of judgments that have more of a supernatural character. 
The first six seals are more natural in terms of their phenomenon. God judges through things that we see around the world today, albeit in a more intense way. But now the judgments begin to take on more of a supernatural character where God is going to pour out judgment on the earth not just through natural phenomena, but through supernatural phenomena, just like in Egypt that specifically targets humankind's gods of the modern age. When it came to Israel, those plagues were not just random plagues that God rained down on Egypt. They were specifically targeting the gods and goddesses that the Egyptians worshipped. And God was demonstrating that He was far above their gods. And that their gods, who were represented in frogs and lice and cattle and the river Nile, were not able to even lift a finger to battle the God of creation. These trumpet judgments, we're going to see the first four, specifically target gods of the modern age that won't even be able to lift a finger to fight the God of the universe. So through these judgments, God's not only pouring out His wrath, He's demonstrating His power over man-made gods of the modern age. Man-made gods like the environment, like human cities and urban areas. Man-made gods like um, uh, military might. Man-made gods like the personal schedule. God's going to show that He's superior to all of that. So at this point, the, the, the judgments take on more of an intense supernatural character that men are not able to reproduce. Yeah, war is judgment from God in the second seal, but the fact is war is a fact of life and men can reproduce that. Men can't reproduce, even on a small scale, what we're getting ready to see with these trumpet judgments. So really, what we have here at the beginning of the chapter is the seventh seal. So we're six seal judgments. We've already looked at those. The four horses of the apocalypse. Then we have the the martyrs calling for God's vengeance. Then we have nuclear holocaust. Now we're at the seventh seal. And for uh, for a visual effect, we've opened them thus far. This is the title deed of the earth that Christ is opening to show that He is the rightful owner of this world. And that Satan is an usurper. And it's sealed with seven seals. And now we're going to open the seventh seal here. This was designed to mirror... A seal in John's day. And here's what it says. And when he had opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven about the space of half an hour, and I saw seven angels which stood before God, and to them were given seven trumpets. So what I want you, kids, y'all can look at that if you want to. What I want you to remember is the seventh seal judgment is the seven trumpet judgments. And then we'll see later that the seventh trumpet is the seven last plague judgments. So I want you to think of a firework or an explosion. Or if you've ever seen the videotape of the Space Shuttle Challenger back in the 80's exploding, you'll see an example of this. Here it goes, it explodes, and the pieces go off in six or seven directions, and then one of those directions explodes, and it goes off in several directions, and so forth and so on. Or if you've seen a firework where it explodes and all those arms go out, And then the arms explode and they put out more arms and so forth and so on. Do you understand the imagery? That's what it is with these judgments. Those seven seal judgments, that explosion of God's wrath. And then on that seventh arm, it again explodes. 
And you have the seven trumpet judgments. And then on one of those arms of the explosion, you have another explosion, which is the seven vile judgments. And so all of the trumpets and all of the vials, by default, are part of the seventh seal, which is the worst of all. In verse 1, when he had opened the seventh seal. This language here, when you look at it, is the language of recommencement, or it's a resumption of the chronology that paused at the end of chapter 6. Remember, chapter 7 is a parenthesis, giving us a behind-the-scenes look at what God is doing in terms of revival while these judgments are pouring out. It's the language of resumption. And here at chapter 8, the chronological clock starts ticking again, and it begins with a half hour of silence in heaven. Silence. Now you think, well, that's good. No, not necessarily. The silence of all. You know, right before these witnesses were sealed in Revelation 7, I talked about how I believe that was prior to the unleashing of the first seal. It says there was silence. And that these angels, these four angels, were not allowed to touch or hurt anything on the earth until this sealing took place. That was the calm before the storm. And then we have the seal judgments. Now, this period of silence is the eye in the midst of the storm. So we've had the calm before the storm. Now we have the eye of the storm. Everybody knows about the eye of a hurricane. Usually the eye, when it passes over an area, back in 1989 when Hurricane Hugo... 89, right? 88? 89, yeah, okay. When it passed, the eye of that storm passed right over Charlotte and right over Hickory. And we had terrible wind, and I remember trees were down all over our neighborhood. We were out of school for a week. I had, we had to live in a hotel. I remember the eye passed over and everything went silent. And it was about the space of a half an hour. And then once that eye passes over, you get the back end of that hurricane, and it's worse than what happened in the beginning. This, is an, this judgment in Revelation is God's, not hurricane but what they call a hypercane. That big red spot you see on the surface of Jupiter, and you can see it in a telescope, that's a giant storm that's been raging for years and years and years. It's not a hurricane. They call that a hypercane. This is what God's bringing, a hypercane of judgment. And now we have a small, short, silent period that's the eye of that storm. You know, 30 minutes is not very long when you're engaged in some pleasant or enjoyable pursuit or employment. In fact, it's not long enough. But it is a nerve-breaking tension that seemingly lasts forever when you are faced with the unknown of certain inevitabilities. Consider the people on this earth at that time. They've already seen the judgments and now it's quiet. Even 30 minutes is nerve-breaking tension not knowing what's going to happen. All of us have faced that when we're applying for a job or we're facing maybe some disciplinary action and we don't know what's going to happen. Or even as kids, you know you're going to be punished, but you don't know what your punishment is. And mom and daddy got to talk about it. And what's it feel like when you're sitting in your room waiting for daddy or mommy to come in there and say, look, this is what's going to happen. Or I'm going to have to give you a spanking. Does that quiet time take forever? Does it make you nervous? That's what it's going to be like for the people on the earth during this eye of the storm. It says there's silence in heaven for about the space of half an hour, the eye of the storm. And then verse 2, I saw the seven angels which stood before God and to them were given seven trumpets. 
So what we see here in these two verses is the seventh seal is the silence, that torture of silence for 30 minutes, plus the seven trumpets. That is the seventh seal judgment. So this is tied to the original seven seals that seal up the title deed of the earth that Christ is opening. And when it's open, He'll set His foot on this earth and publicly read His claim to this planet because He possesses the title deed as kinsman redeemer. So we've got the seventh seal is the silence for 30 minutes plus the seven trumpets. Now I want you to just kind of look forward a little bit for the sake of chronology. In chapter 8, what we have are the first four trumpet judgments. And that's what we're going to finish before I head overseas with my family next month. In chapter 9, you have the fifth and the sixth trumpet judgment. Then we have another parenthesis in chapter 10 that concerns prophecy going out into all the world. And it concerns Jesus and His public reading of the title deed, I believe. And then in chapter 11, toward the end of that, we've got the seventh trumpet. The first four are in chapter 8. The fifth, sixth, and the seventh trumpet are called the three woes. And in fact, an angel flies through heaven saying, Woe unto the inhabitants of the earth by reason of the three trumpets that are yet to sound. And so the first four are in chapter 8. Then we get into the three woes that have more of a demonic it's like the demonic and the divine being unleashed on the world in an intense fashion. And then the seventh trumpet begins after that and it covers a longer period in the book of Revelation because it is the seven last bowl judgments. And these bowl or vile judgments happen very quickly, very quickly at the very end before Christ sets foot on the Mount of Olives at Armageddon and overthrows the wicked. And if you want a good description, Dylan highlighted the prophet Zechariah this morning. If you want a good description of what it's going to look like for the wicked gathered against Christ at Armageddon when He sets foot down, how many of you ever seen that old movie Raiders of the Lost Ark? The first Indiana Jones movie. Remember when they opened up the ark and those Nazis and that scientist are standing there looking into it and uh, then those spirits came out and all that and uh, started to just destroy everybody around. And the idea is you don't mess with God's stuff, you know. One of the guys standing there, one of these Nazis is standing there looking and all of a sudden his face just melts off and the eyeballs pop out and all that. It's kind of a gruesome thing. As a child, it haunted me. But if you read Zechariah 14, to me that's a good visual example of what it's going to look like for those armies gathered against Christ when He sets down. It literally says that their skin will consume away and their eyeballs will fall out of their sockets. That's the judgment of God. That's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, come to set up a kingdom. It is what it is. Either you believe God and take Him at His word or you don't. Is your Jesus the Jesus of the Bible or is He an idol you've created in your own mind to serve your own lust and pleasures? Christ came as a suffering servant. He's coming as a conquering King. And you don't be conquered by Him now through surrender by grace through faith that you may reign with Him later. Bow the knee now because you want to, not when you have to. But that's kind of a map, as you see, of these trumpet judgments. And then I want to end with this today. What we have in verses 3 through 6 are a prologue to further judgment. So these trumpets don't just blow. We've got an image of a priestly intercessor here. 
intercessing on behalf of the saints who have long prayed to God for vengeance. You remember the martyrs back in chapter 5, uh, or chapter 6, right? How long, O oh Lord, are you going to wait before you judge them that have spilled our blood? And he said, wait or rest for a little season because there are more that must meet your fate, the tribulation saints. Now we begin to see this visual imagery of that prayer being answered. And let me just read these verses and then we'll finish today. So he sees the seven angels and they were given seven trumpets in verse 3. And another angel came and stood at the altar having a golden censer and there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and cast it into the earth. And there were voices and thunderings and lightnings and an earthquake. And the seven angels which had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound. So what we have here is a scene in heaven that is a prologue to judgment. Just like the scene in heaven from chapter 4 and 5 that was a prologue to the opening of the seals. And what we see is this angel performing the duties or the ministry of intercession. So starting next week, we're going to look at this angel. Who is it? I believe it's a picture of Jesus Christ in His high priestly ministry. And He's taking these prayers of the saints, these prayers for vengeance, that we can take before God. God says, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, I will repay. It's not our place to take vengeance, but we can take it before God and ask for righteousness and justice to be done. And here we see this angel in a high priestly disposition offering these prayers up for God to God and then taking that incense from the temple and casting it to the earth. And then we have the angels preparing themselves to sound. So there's a lot that I want to talk about concerning the ministry of intercession, and we're going to do that next week. If you want to take your outline and look at some of these verses, you know, I want to talk about the Old Testament altar of incense that was in the tabernacle in the temple. I want to talk about Jesus Christ's role as a high priest in the life of a believer. The ministry of the Holy Spirit. I want to consider, who, who is this other angel? Because there's several times in the book of Revelation where John is told he sees, quote-unquote, another angel. And I believe that it is Jesus Christ in His various disposition in dispositions in terms of his multifold ministry. It's just like in the Old Testament. Who was it that Nebuchadnezzar saw in that fiery furnace? He said, look, I threw three Hebrews in there and now there's a fourth one walking around and he looks like the Son of God. Not a son of the gods like some of these Bible translations say, but a son of God. Nebuchadnezzar saw a pre-incarnate vision of Christ. Or the man that wrestled with Jacob and touched his thigh bone. That was Christ. A Christophany. Because Jacob called the place Penuel, which means I have seen God face to face and I have not perished. That wasn't just some vision. That wasn't just some revelation. Jacob wrestled with God. Who was the captain of the Lord's host that stood overlooking Joshua and the people before they crossed into Canaan? That was a pre-incarnate Christ. And I think during the times of Revelation, we're going to see Christ in that sense, these Christophanies again. It's almost like in, when the church is gone, the tribulation ensues, 
And it almost reverts back to the way God dealt with people in the Old Testament. You know, people won't, the Holy Spirit will not indwell. He's taken from the earth. But He will come upon people like He did in the Old Testament. Like He came upon David and He came upon Saul at various times and they prophesied. And Christ will reveal Himself not only through His preachers, the Jewish witnesses, but in a Christophany type of sense. And so it's amazing how all of God's Word comes together and it's consistent in the way that God deals with people. But I want to end today with this. As you think about these things, there are some things about prayer that we learned from chapter 8 we're going to talk about. Sobering thoughts about prayer. New Testament exhortations about prayer. And that the ultimate answer to any prayer is God's vengeance over wickedness and the setting up of righteousness. The Bible says that we, according to God's promise, if we're Christians, look for a new heavens and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. That's the blessed hope of the believer, and that's the ultimate answer to any prayer. And setting up righteousness requires vengeance. And so it's interesting to think of prayer in this context. But let me end with this. Hebrews chapter 4. As you guys meditate on chapter 8 this week, and this angel performing a ministry of intercession, let's just hear a few verses about what the Bible says concerning Jesus Christ and His ministry of intercession for the believer. Because I'm going to tell you, my friends, there is no religion on the face of this planet that concerns such a promise with regard to its gods and goddesses. You know, people think that Buddhism or Hinduism is so attractive. And the people that follow it in their native context look at us foolish Americans and laugh. You know, first of all, you've got to be born into Hinduism. You don't, you're not born a white man in America and you go to India and convert to Hinduism. They laugh at you. You're born into Hinduism. It's, it's laughable when the Americans come over and shave their heads and don the robes and walk around like sadhus. The Hindus are snickering behind their back thinking this is just an opportunity for us to take advantage and take their money. But they're not Hindu. They're not born into it. And a lot of the same can be said about Buddhism. But the gods of men... Ask Vishnu who was saved out of that bondage. In fact, he sent me an update this morning where he got to share Christ with a 94-year-old man yesterday and give him one of those Scripture portions that we've printed in Nepal. And at the end of it, he said, I am praising God that He stopped me from worshiping all these false gods and goddesses because they exist to destroy you. The gods of men exist to destroy. You know, it's been recorded that Buddha's last words, and I can't necessarily verify it, were, I didn't make it. I didn't make it. I didn't make it to enlightenment. And the best He could offer was follow my example and maybe you'll find peace. But what Jesus offers is very different. And we get a glimpse of that here. Man, I'm preaching a revival here. I need to slow down. It's late. Chapter 4, verses 14 through 16. And let us end on this. And what a great promise this is for the believer. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession, for we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. The gods of men can't be touched. They've never experienced that stuff. They take on the form of men. Sheba takes on the form of a man to rape women and to satisfy his own lust and pleasures. That's why the Nepalis have a proverb that says, if Sheba does it, it's a miracle. If we do the same thing, it's rape. That's their proverb in their own religion. But Jesus 
is not a priest that can't be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but he was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. A perfect priest. Now look what it says in verse 16. What a promise. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace. Not, quaver, not quivering with fear, but boldly to the throne of God's grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Because Christ is our high priest Christian, we can come into the throne room boldly, not quivering with fear and shaking in our boots because God's got a baseball bat to whack us over the head. But we can come in boldly and find grace and mercy to help in time of need. And I dare say that no man-made religion, my friends, can offer such hope. Such freedom from bondage. Not only does God save us through Christ, those that repent and put their faith in Him, but we are given Christ as a priestly intercessor. In fact, it says in chapter 7 that Jesus Christ liveth ever to make intercession for His saints. My friends, Shiva... Muhammad, you know, the God of Islam is not Allah, it's Muhammad. Okay, if you go to Pakistan, the blasphemy law puts you to death for making, it, for making statements or accusations against Muhammad. It's not for saying things about Allah, it's for blaspheming Muhammad that you are put to death. So make no mistake, Muslims worship a man. Muslims have more in common with atheists than they do with Christians. You know, there are some people laboring on the mission field that talk about Muslims are the cousins of Christians and Allah is the same as Jehovah. It doesn't work that way. Muslims and atheists have more in common than Muslims and Christians because both Muslims and atheists worship men as God. And I don't care what any Muslim says, all you got to do is look at the outliving of Islamic law in Islamic countries and you see that Muhammad sits on a platform even above God. They don't say, God, peace be upon him, or glory be to him. They say, Muhammad, may peace be upon him. You know, so man-made gods, Muhammad, Shiva, who's the devil himself, and these others, they don't offer this ministry of intercession. Look at the Greek gods and goddesses you read about in mythology. There was nothing even close to this. And yet this relationship that God extended to men has been there all the way from the beginning. This is the relationship that Abraham had with God. God called Abraham the friend of God. Can you imagine being called the friend of the Creator? Wow! But through Jesus Christ, we are not only friends of God, we're the brothers of Christ. Not because we're gods and we inherit our own planet like the Mormons teach, but because of the priestly intercession of Jesus Christ. And my friends, what a great promise it is to come boldly. We can enter God's throne room boldly. Holding fast our profession. And we can ask God with boldness to save our friends and family members that are unsaved. We can ask God with boldness to deliver people from the power of sin. We can ask God with boldness to deliver us from temptation. To help us stand firm in dark days. To share the Gospel. To come alongside missionaries. We can ask God with boldness and the Bible says that Jesus takes those prayers and prays them Himself on our behalf. We'll learn next week that even the Holy Spirit prays for us on a daily basis in, uh, in, in groanings that cannot be uttered. And my friends, that's that great ministry of intercession that we can enjoy as followers of Jesus Christ. And it's something, again, yet again, that differentiates this Gospel message from anything 
that man calls religion. And that's why I don't consider the Bible religion in the modern sense of the word. I don't consider me to be a follower of the Christian religion. I had a hard time when I applied for my visa, my visa transfer to India. There was a question on there. Please check your religion. And there were boxes. Islam, Buddhist, Christian. I had a real hard time checking the Christian box on that application. Because I don't follow the Christian religion. I follow the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Gospel is not religion. Religion is men seeking after God and maybe trying to find Him. The Gospel is God coming and seeking men when men didn't even have the eyes to seek Him. And so, churchianity, the Christian religion is not the Gospel. There was a day and time when using the word Christian and using the word religion was understood to be the Gospel. But not in this modern day of ecumenism. People say, well, what religion are you when you're out sharing the Gospel? And I know Dylan's been asked this question. And the answer is not, I follow, I go to this church. The answer is, Jesus Christ has freed me from the bondage of religion. And He can free you too. You can be free from this. And that's why Nepalis will gather by the hundreds to hear the preaching. Because they know their religion is bondage. And they want freedom. They, they worship Shiva, but they're scared to death of Him. They want to be free of that. What an amazing thing it is to communicate these things not only to the Gentiles, but also to the Jewish people about the nature of their, the God of Israel whose arms are outstretched. Messiah who can come and do for you what no Levitical priest could do because He was touched with the feeling of our infirmities yet without sin. What an amazing promise. And consider that an introduction to what we're going to learn from Revelation chapter 8. I'm sorry we're going over this morning, but really we have no time schedule. If we were in Bariloche, I think we'd probably go another hour or so. I just remember the church went very long down there one time. That's all right. I wish we could be more or less schedule-oriented in this country, and I appreciate you guys being that way. And I hope nothing I have said this morning has taken away from what was already an incredible exhortation to us. And it's been such a, a pleasure to have Dylan with me and... Uh, you know, it's been just thinking back on all the times, whether it was in America, Nepal, Bangladesh, Peru, Argentina, Chile, all the adventures we've been able to share together and to see God using him in such an amazing way that has compelled us as foolproof gospel ministries to seek opportunities to go to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And because Dylan took the time to train and help Ricky, I believe Ricky is now equipped to seek something similar to what, like he said, you don't go to the desert to fish. You go where the fish are biting. And friends, just like in Bariloche, the Israelis come through Kathmandu in droves. They come through Ladakh in droves. And so we're asking God, what can we do to be a source of hospitality to these backpackers? And I'm excited about learning from Him as time goes by. I don't know if what we're seeking to do will look exactly like that. If it did look exactly like that, that'd be awesome because it's such a great model. But I'm just excited about what God's going to do and how He's going to use Ricky and possibly Janine and how we can all be partnered together in these things until Christ comes back. Amen.